Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. And today's gospel passage, the opening line refers to the Lord's silencing of the Sadducees. It occurs just before this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. In case you don't remember the story, the Sadducees were one of several Jewish sects at the time of Jesus. They were a group that believed only in the Pentateuch, that is, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. That was their only scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. That, that's the Greek term for what you may have also heard described as the Torah. Because the Sadducees rejected the prophets as canon or scripture, they did not share the popular belief in the resurrection of the dead that the Pharisees and most average Jews at the time of Jesus believed. However, Jesus silenced them because he took their own words right out of their own scriptures, the Torah, to show them that they thought wrongly about the resurrection. To their question, he answered, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. What's one of the most amazing aspects of Jesus' response is that he only uses the part of the scriptures that the Sadducees believed in by quoting Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus 3.6 in his response. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He doesn't try to convince them of the validity of the part of the scriptures they don't use, which I'm sure, as you'd imagine, wouldn't get very far today or then. He doesn't browbeat them with passages from Ezekiel that speak of the resurrection. Instead, he meets them where they are and nevertheless leaves them and the crowd speechless. I think we can learn a lot from Jesus' approach. We're not going to win hearts by trying to convince people in our largely secular postmodern world that our scriptures are authoritative. Instead, we have to work to use the things that they are familiar with to show them that God is alive and well, and to show them that the faith, the meaning that they are searching for in this life is contained in our faith. And Jesus handles the second test described in our passage in exactly the same way. This time, it's the Pharisees asking the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Their question is in no way innocent, with any sincere intent to learn. In fact, the gospel tells us that the Pharisees are there to test him, to put him on trial. They are looking for something they can finally nail Jesus on. They're hoping that Jesus, with his radical message, will say something out of line. That he'll do something like he did last week when he healed on the Sabbath. Yeah, he might have backed that up pretty well with the law, but sooner or later, they think they're going to back him into a corner. Especially with all this talk of the Pharisees being hypocritical after all. So they're there to tempt him by asking him to choose just one commandment above all. But just like in the case of the Sadducees, Jesus cuts right to the bone using their own thinking and teaching on the matter and quotes what the Pharisees indeed believe is the most important passage in the Bible right from Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. This passage is central in Judaism. I imagine sometime in your life you've visited a Jewish household. And sometime in your life you've noticed those little boxes at the door frame, those decorative boxes, they're called mezuzahs. And in those mezuzahs are these very words from Deuteronomy, commanded to be on their doorposts. You may also know or not know that faithful Orthodox Jews wear these verses in small boxes called phylacteries or telephone, both hard words, on their arm and on their forehead, between the frontlets between their eyes, during their morning and evening prayers. These verses are called the Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. The Pharisees themselves would agree that this is, in fact, the central commandment of Judaism from which all else follows. But here Jesus, is, Jesus astonishes everyone by saying, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Something also actually found in the scriptures of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying here when he says the second is like unto it, he uses the Greek word homo, the same. It isn't an analogy. He's saying that loving your neighbor as yourself is one and the same thing as loving God. And that's where he's really putting it to the Pharisees. They followed the law to a T, or so they thought. Jesus told them they were failing because they were not loving others the way they should. And therefore, they weren't really keeping the law. Instead, they made the law a burden. Instead, they were too caught up in the externalities of the law, wanting the praise of others for doing it so well. They had made the law their God instead of God. God cares a lot about the law. Jesus himself says that he himself came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. But fulfilling it isn't just following the rules. It's applying it with the right judgment, the appropriate harshness, and with endless mercy. That's how God applies the law. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is, but as we said last week, knowing we would sin every day, St. Paul consoles his hearers by saying, renew yourselves from day to day. Before I continue with what happens next in the passage, I want to pause for a moment on the so-called golden rule and be sure we know what it really means. One thing it doesn't mean is treat others the way I want to be treated. Loving your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean treat your neighbor however they want to be treated. Somehow, though, when you try to love your neighbor in the right way, you'll have that exact thing thrown back in your face. But nothing can be further from the truth. If everyone treated me the way I wanted to be treated, I wouldn't be a very good person. It wouldn't be a lot of fun to be around. I'd be expecting you to give me all your stuff, worship me at every whim, feed my ego, etc., etc., you know how it'd go. You'd leave me alone to do whatever I wanted to, and who cares who gets hurt along the way? And surely that's not what Jesus meant, and of course it wasn't. Why? Because the fact that loving your neighbor as yourself is loving God are two, both the same thing explains exactly why. It works both ways. If you are truly loving your neighbor, then you're simultaneously loving and worshiping God. 
And what did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. And when you love God completely, you can't help but to love your neighbor as yourself, because you yourself will be godlike. It is little wonder that if we love God completely, the God who we as Orthodox Christians so often refer to as the great philanthropist, the great lover of mankind, then we will, by that love, unite ourselves with, and, and with God and be loving our neighbor. You will begin to live what I like to call the platinum rule, to love God, to love our neighbor as God loves all, to love our neighbor as God loves everyone, to do unto others as God does unto you. That's what Jesus means here by loving your neighbor as yourself. So, turning back to the gospel. So Jesus has answered that question, and everybody's not saying much. But Jesus has a question for them. He says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus is saying right there that the Christ is Lord. And that means something really specific. That means Christ is God himself. There's no difference in Judaism. Remember that when Jesus implied that he was Lord at one point during his first teachings, he almost got stoned for it. Jesus here is hoping to open their ears and their eyes to the fact that Christ is way more than they expect. That Christ won't just be a human leader to save them from Roman oppression. That's what the Jews were hoping for. Instead, it will be God himself coming to save them. Maybe not quite the way they were hoping. But in fact, Jesus is the new Joshua. And Jesus is indeed the Hellenized form of Joshua from the Old Testament. And that means God saves Jesus is God coming to save us himself. Because indeed, God does love mankind. But how this connects to what we were just talking about is here, Jesus Christ, the God-man himself, is standing right in front of the Pharisees. He just told them to love God and their fellow human being. They're the same thing. They could fulfill those great commandments right now how? Just by loving the person right in front of them. But instead, they're there to tempt him. And by doing so, they're tempting both God and their neighbor. They're out to get both God and their fellow neighbor. And of course, if they just chose to love Jesus, they wouldn't just be loving Jesus, but loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might, and loving all their neighbors as themselves. So what does this mean for us? Unless you're already fulfilling this in your life completely, and I know I'm not, it means you have a choice. You can start by loving God the right way, or you can start by loving your neighbor the right way. Either way, you'll end up with both the love of God and of your neighbor, because the two are inseparably intertwined. If you think you're doing one, you can use the other as your guide. If you think you're loving your neighbor, well, what would God do? Did you meet that standard? If not, next time, do what you think God would do. Think you're loving God? Well, was it charitable to your neighbor? If not, you're acting as the Pharisees did. 
so from each flows the other. By judging your actions by either on either by the other, you will stay on the narrow path that leads to salvation. Do this, and you will be a light to the world around you, and be Jesus to those around you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.